0: Pastor Caleb said that uh, I could preface this reading with just something that I saw written by F.B. Meyer and it refers to how current the Bible is. The Bible is a book for all time. What it said, it says. What it was, it is. It was written long ago. The ink is still wet. Its pages are immortal Read and pondered by generation after generation. Sin is the same. Man is the same. God is the same. God's Word, the Bible, has living power. It is our Father's great message for the life of every day. We're reading this morning from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 19. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any fruit of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kathy. I ask that you do turn to Genesis chapter 1. We will be looking at chapters 1, 2. And three this morning. As we consider Advent season, the coming of Christ, we are looking at the storyline of the Bible. Last week we noted that the story is singular in nature. It speaks of the person of God and the purpose of God. And there are various chapters, various subplots, as it were, but all of them contribute to this one idea concerning the person and purpose of God that he is the one from whom all things come, through whom all things come, and for whom all things come and exist. As we look at the storyline of God, we are going to consider the big idea of now what? The presence of evil. Almost from the get-go in chapter 1, God begins preparing us for this other idea, this other part of the story, and it is the presence of evil. And I appreciate the applicability of the text As Kathy read Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 19, and what F.B. Meyer had to say concerning it. But sin does indeed set the stage for God's power to be manifested, the justice of God to be manifested, and indeed the grace of God to be manifested. As we look at the story found in chapters 1, 2, and 3, there are many different angles from which we can approach the topic I am going to attempt to look at it textually. That means I will be looking at several verses inside of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and try to be true to the story of Scripture itself. Although no one applauds the villain in the plot, and this is what we have, a story. Although no one applauds the villain in the plot, the villain often plays a key role in making the story move forward and provides the necessary contrast with good. The villain in the story is going to heighten the hero. And that is what we are going to see in the storyline of the Bible. There is a dual role that the adversary plays. It is to foil and oppose the story's hero. And that's what we will see in the introduction of sin into the story of God. But in the story of God, the villain is sin and the devil. The villain is a part of the story. So as we look at the storyline of God, as we look at the story of Scripture, we understand that the villain is a, a part of the story, but he is a part of the story. And although we cannot know exhaustively as to why the villain appears in the story, we do know the villain will show the power, the justice, and the grace of God. Now as we look at the big picture concerning our study as we prepare for Advent, is last week we noted the person and purpose of God is the story of Scripture. Today, the presence of evil. However, we will be looking at the promise of a Savior. With the presence of evil, we have the introduction of the Savior himself. I have been noting how the story has this idea of creation. It has the idea of transgression. It has the idea of condemnation in response to the transgression, as well as redemption. And each of these pieces, each of these parts are a part of the whole. They tell the story of God. And it is absolutely necessary for us to interpret each episode as a part of the ongoing story. None of these ideas can be separated or put in isolation from the other ideas. Creation, transgression, condemnation, redemption are a part of the one story. And we would be in error if we somehow isolated these ideas and did not see them connected. Thus, we are attempting to see the big picture and to make the necessary connections as it will affect the story. And thus, our desire this morning is to see this chapter, as it were, inside the story as it addresses sin. Sin is introduced as the villain to the story. With sin, God does indeed show his power, his justice, and his grace. And part of our desire is to begin seeing, to begin seeing how total our depravity truly is. The rift between God and man is so vast as to disqualify humanity from ever hoping to achieve resolution apart from the divine initiative. Right from the beginning, when everything was in a sense idyllic and perfect, we sinned against God. And our depravity is so great that there is no possible way that we can achieve resolution apart from the divine initiative. So God must act. The narrative in chapters two and three is not interested in describing the situation as it were before the fall, but in explaining man's present plight, why we suffer from frustration, toil, pain, and death. The manifold profound troubles in human life all have their root in the one trouble of man's relationship to God because there is a rift between God and man you and I live with problems but my desire is to look at the text of scripture itself and to see how the villain sin itself is part of this story and that's the first idea that I wish to point out is simply this that sin is a part of the story Genesis 1 and 2, as I hope to show, presupposes chapter 3. We are being set up, as it were, for chapter 3 by the language of chapters 1 and 2. The picture inside of chapters 1 and 2 is indeed heavenly. Chapter 1 gives us the six days of creation, the seventh day of rest. Chapter 2 expands on that idea, becomes more intimate and detailed as it relates to man's origin, man's existence. And then chapter 3 introduces the villain. Chapters 1 and 2 are setting us up for Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation chapter 22. But there are four thoughts inside of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 that I believe show how sin is a part of the story. And I'm going to begin by turning your attention to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And again, what I'm wanting us to do is to enter into the story of Scripture. If I were reading this for the very first time and trying to understand what is happening, what are my immediate impressions? Well, first I understand that God has created all things. All things are from him, through him, and for him. And everything inside of what he creates is for his glory. And somehow, in ways that I cannot begin to understand, this includes transgression, condemnation, and redemption. All these things are working together to give God glory. But notice how we are set up with this idea in chapter one, beginning in verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And these verses are loaded with theological truth. But there's an idea inside of the verse that I want us to consider this morning. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God created man with the express purpose of them enjoying him. Adam and Eve, mankind, humanity at large, were designed... To enjoy the presence of God. This is what we were designed to do. To enjoy his presence. To enjoy his company. God immediately in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. Paints a picture of intimate communion. Genesis lays down the idea of covenant and relationship from the start. I God created you humanity. And there is a relationship between myself as God and you as the created. And this relationship is one of intimate communion. It is the idea of covenant. It is the idea of relationship. He created mankind in order that they might enjoy his presence. God placed man in the garden in order that man might worship and obey him. Mankind served as a vice regent for God. And it is hard for us to fully process the interchange between God and man prior to sin. But Adam and Eve would fellowship with God in the cool of the day. A picture of intimate communion is painted for us in Genesis 1 and 2. This is God's design. And this is what was possessed prior to the introducing of the villain. And this paradise that we have painted for us in Genesis, was not because of the absence of pain and suffering or the presence of every notable pleasure, but rather the very presence of God and the enjoyment of such by Adam and Eve. They had this intimate communion with God. That's why it was paradise. It wasn't paradise because of the absence of evil. It was paradise because God was there. And this... This, fellowship, this intimacy, this communion is what sin will destroy. So God paints for us this idyllic picture of Adam and Eve enjoying intimate communion with their creator. Look at chapter 2 now, verses 16 and 17. What I am simply pointing out this morning is that sin is a part of the story. And I want us to see from Genesis 1 and 2 and chapter 3 how this is placed in the story. Verses 16 and 17, notice what happens. I'll begin reading in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Chapter 2 is an expansion of what has already been stated in chapter 1. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. I find this interesting. If you and I were to simply read the story without any previous knowledge, if we had no other presuppositions, and we simply read the Bible for the very first time, there are several questions that would begin being asked. Why the prohibition? Why this negative of everything that God had in the garden? He places one negative in front of them. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says to them, when you do disobey or should you disobey, should you disobey in the day you disobey, you will die. Now, at this point, nothing's dying. So I'm not quite sure what their understanding of death is. However, I will note, as we continue to study, that sin does introduce death into the world. And there are certain consequences because of the choice they made. But first of all, sin is a part of the story. We know this because before sin enters in, there is this intimate communion noted between God and man. And then it can also be seen by a singular prohibition. In the midst of all this, God says, don't eat of that tree. One negative. And the day that you eat of it, you will die. We're being set up for something. Genesis 2:15 and 16 imply that God led Adam to the garden personally. And this is in keeping with the unspoiled intimate relationship between Adam and his creator. They walked in the cool of the day. God places in the garden of Eden a test. For Adam and Eve, God could have absent such a thing if he so willed. He did not have to have the prohibition in place. But for whatever reason, he placed it there. Adam and Eve made thousands of choices every day and every one was completely moral. There was only one choice that would introduce death into the world and it was to violate this singular prohibition. The test was to see whether or not they would obey God or their own desires. So the choice was in front of them. Adam and Eve were free both to sin and not to sin. And urged by the tempter, they exercised the freedom to sin. The seemingly insignificant act of eating fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil had the drastic repercussions of plunging the whole human race into sin. But from the very beginning of the story... God places in this perfect environment a negative, a test. The inference of God's commands in verses 16 and 17 is that God alone, and here's what I find fascinating, God alone knows what is good for man and that God alone knows what is not good for man. Everything that was good, God said, go ahead and do. And the one thing that was not good, God said, don't do. To enjoy the good Man must trust and obey God. If man disobeys, he will have to decide for himself what is good and what is not good. This is the issue. Who's going to determine for us or for you, Adam and Eve, what is good and what is not good? If we want to believe that God is the one who determines what is good, we trust him and obey him. If we believe that we know what is good, then we rely on self While to modern man such a prospect may seem desirable to the author of Genesis, it is the worst fate that could have befallen him. Only God knows what is good for man. Only God can know what is good. Before sin happens, God is already speaking of death. When we read the statement in Genesis 2.17, it presupposes we know what death is or that Adam and Eve had an idea as to what this entailed. So God is setting us up for the story. He is setting us up for this fall, not pushing us toward it. He's simply saying that it is part of the story. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. So when we read this story, the villain is a part of the story. And notice what happens in chapter 2, verse 25. It gives us this statement. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had no guilt. They had absolutely no fear. Here's what I find interesting about the story. So far in the book of Genesis, as we've read this creation narrative, we found out that God and man are in intimate communion. They walk with each other in the cool of the day. In the midst of this, God places a tree that they are not to partake of. And the day they partake of it, they will die. Who will they obey? Who will they trust, God or themselves? Then we see in chapter 2, verse 25, that Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. Neither Adam nor Eve had any shame. That doesn't process with us. But they had absolutely no shame. There was no guilt between them, with each other or with God. They existed outside of fear. And this is what sin will destroy. Now, here's what I find interesting. Remember that the chapter divisions and the verses are added. So if we're simply reading this narrative, we read verse 25 of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And again, just read it as a straight story. We have this creative action by God. He creates all things. And between God and man, there is this intimate communion. They enjoy each other's company. God places in this context a singular prohibition, a singular negative, a singular test. And he says to them, if you disobey me, In the day you disobey, you will die. The passage continues. They were both naked, and they had absolutely no shame, no guilt, no fear. And then from that, chapter 3, verse 1, we have the presence of a tempting serpent. Although our immediate text does not tell us how the serpent became the tempter. Again, there's so much theology, so much Bible that we bring into this. We know that the devil is the one who speaks through the serpent. We know all that, but that's not what's in the narrative. The narrative is simply telling us the story. And the narrative is now introducing us to the tempter. And we go from chapter 2, verse 25, they are naked and without shame, to chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals. And what's equally interesting is that the serpent... Tempts Eve. tempts Eve with a question. We go from the very good of Genesis 1.31 and no shame in Genesis 2.25 to now the serpent was more crafty. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Nothing up to this point is, in a sense, causing us to be startled. It's simply telling the story. And it's showing us how this is a part of the story. The story is building up to an initial climax whereby the first test will be played out. Here we have in the midst of this garden a singular negative. The devil is focusing on that one negative. Will they or will they not obey God? The whole story is pushing to this one point. Satan through the serpent, we know from other passages, tempts Adam and Eve in the one area where the prohibition exists. He continues to tempt us in those three areas. Everything is perfect, and now something dark enters the story. The serpent immediately attacks God's integrity and position as creator. And this is what we will see as we read this narrative, as it has already been read for us, and we are already familiar with it. The devil attacks the integrity of God. Yea, hath God said. And I'm going to simply note two things, the word of God and temptation, the will of man and temptation. But with reference to the word of God and temptation, temptation focuses on the word of God because it is through his word we come to understand his will. How do we know what God wants? From the Bible. And this is what the devil seeks to undermine. The devil takes what is positive and he turns it into a negative. But there are three simple ideas inside the temptation of Eve, and then the fall of Adam, and then the fall of humanity. The devil raised a doubt concerning the word from God. Yea, hath God said. Does God really know what is best for us? Or is that something that you and I can decide for ourselves? This is the temptation that confronts all of us. Who will rule in our lives? I had the opportunity to hear my son speak on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And he pointed out how the first three statements inside of the Lord's Prayer are imperatives or commands. And the way that it should read is, Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is in contrast to my honor, my kingdom, my will. And that same temptation faced Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, hath God said, does God really know what is best in these areas? Or do you think that you can do better than God? It's us against God. Will we submit to him or will we resist him? So the devil raised a doubt concerning a word from God. Yea, hath God said, Eve distorts the word from God by adding to it. Not only can we not eat it, but we can't even touch it. As soon as we touch it, we're going to die, which was not true. And then finally, the devil denies what God said as being true. Notice what is stated in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He emphatically rejects what God had said. And thus He seeks to undermine the integrity of God. Does God know what is best for your life? And so the devil tempts Eve by attacking the word of God. This singular negative, this one thing, this prohibition. The serpent is introduced to the story. And the serpent tempts Eve in that one area. And then notice how it plays out with the will of man and temptation. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and many have taught on this idea and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. In that moment, she disobeyed God. In that moment, she violated that singular prohibition, the one negative, and she broke it. And then she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. It's so amazing, the simplicity in which Adam falls. Eve is tempted by the devil. Eve listens to the lie and buys into it. Adam, hey, eat this, it's good. (laughs) He just, the story, the narrative is just, and he ate it. New Testament revelation tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived. He went in with his eyes open. It is the same pattern that we see all the time. The lust of the eyes. First John 2, 16, we see the same pattern. The lust of the eyes, the woman saw it. The lust of the flesh, it was a delight to the eyes. The pride of life, desirable to make one wise. I know better than God. I know that he says that I shouldn't do this, but I know better than God. And if I do this, I'm going to be far happier than if I don't do it. We see the same thing in Joshua chapter 7 verse 21 with Achan and his sin at Jericho. We see it with David, King David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 verses 2 through 4. It's the same pattern. Will we or will we not believe God? That choice is before us every day of our lives. The same sin. Genesis is telling us a story. And it's the story of God. His person and purpose. So far inside the story, we learn that mankind had intimate communion with God. We know that man enjoyed the very presence of God. Inside this story, there is a singular negative. We know there is no shame, and we know that the tempter is now introduced into the story. Adam and Eve chose poorly. They chose foolishly. And as a consequence of the sin, sin is now bringing death into the story. What's interesting is that Genesis chapter 3 explains the human dilemma. Why are we the way we are? Sin. Sin. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7, we have already noted that Adam and Eve reject God's will. They reject God's will. Now, in the day that they rejected God's will and partook of the fruit and disobeyed him, in that day, what happened? It says, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. From that day till this day, we've been dying. What does this death look like To the narrator, death is self-will. Death is rejecting God's will. When we sin, we die. And we die with self-will. They rejected God's will and they died. In verse 7, notice what happens. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they now knew that they were naked. Before that they were naked, they had no shame. Now they knew they were naked, and now they had shame. They had guilt. They had fear. And here is their response to this new knowledge. It says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is their attempt to undo what has just been done. And from that day till this, we continue To try every way apart from God to cover our nakedness, our shame, our fear, our guilt. So immediately inside the story, we see that sin brings death. This death is self-will. This death is self-rule. Death is living with this shame. It is living with this guilt. And we are always attempting to cover up our shame, apart from God. And it isn't possible. Look at verses 8 through 10. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And again, remember that celebratory spirit that we saw earlier in chapters 1 and 2, where God, Adam, and Eve, where they'd hear him coming. There would be this great delight God is here in our midst. Now, under self-willing, self-ruling, there is nothing but fear. They hid themselves. This is the condition of man. This is our condition. Then God asks them the question, Who told you you were naked? And it's sadly humorous. Who told you? Did you eat from the tree? He asks the man. Did you eat from that tree? What does he do? It's the woman, but it's even more diabolical than that. It's not just the woman. It's the woman what? You gave me. All of us do that, don't we? It's not my fault. And it's not even my fault. It's not even her fault. It's your fault. Because you set this whole thing in motion. Had you not given me that crazy woman... Did I just say that out loud? (laughs) Had you not given me that woman, I would have not sinned. Then he goes to the woman. What does she do? It's the serpent. This is the death. It is the idea of rejecting God's will. It is the idea of attempting to cover our nakedness apart from God. It is hiding from God. It is the refusal to accept responsibility for our actions. We are always trying to shift blame. We have heard the statement that most people in prison are innocent. They all claim to be innocent. We all claim to be innocent. None of us are culpable. None of us are responsible. But that's the consequence of this death. Always shifting blame. But this is in the story. Verses 11 through 13, they refuse to accept responsibility for their sin. It can be seen, the, the idea that sin is a part of the story and that now death is in the story. It can be seen in the pronouncement of sentence against them by God in verses 14 through 19. The serpent is now going to eat dust. He takes the position of defeat. Eve's relationship to childbearing and to her husband and others will be, now become problematic. All relationships are problematic. Do you understand that? Every relationship that you and I exist in is problematic. Why is it problematic? Because back in the garden, Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. And that has tainted us to this day. And I'll talk about that in just a second. And I'll simply comment on it. But there was a sentence against them by God. Adam would now engage in toilsome labor to secure a living. Work is not sin. okay? Contrary to popular opinion, work is not sin. But that fatigue, that weariness, that exhaustion, that idea that it just never ends the grind, that is sin. And Eve is now going to be struggling to secure a living and the world becomes resistant once it was fertile now it is resistant sin is a part of the story and sin brings death into the story when you read chapter 3 verses 23 and 24 notice this concluding idea therefore the lord god sent him out from the garden of eden remember this is the place where adam and eve fellowship with god in the cool of the garden To cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. The fellowship that he had previously enjoyed is now gone. And he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In that is mercy. However, we want to simply note that sin is a part of the story and sin brings with it death. And this is what that death entails. It entails fear. It entails guilt. It entails shame. It entails separation. It entails toil. It entails misunderstanding. This is all at the front end of the story. It's all at the front end. Sin is a part of the story. But what I want us to note this morning is that sin is still a part of the story. What is interesting after chapter 3, as you look at chapters 1 through 11, we typically outline this as primeval history. But what's interesting is when you look at this, it talks about creation. And this is how everyone outlines the first 11 chapters. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Everyone marks it in this manner. And all you have is this growing avalanche. Of sin, it's showing how pervasive and how invasive sin is. You go from fall to a flood, where Genesis six five says that God saw the wickedness of man's heart, and that it was only evil continually. And then it's a, in a sense, man gets a second chance, and what does he do? He blows it again at the Tower of Babel, just to say that man is thoroughly wicked There are two primary ideas we will conclude with this morning. The first is simply this. All of us are sinners by identification. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, "Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned." Romans 5.12-21 tells us that we are identified as being in Adam. And the Bible knows of only two types of people. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are in Adam. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are in Christ. But all of us are sinners by identification And then Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 23, it simply says that all of us are sinners by participation. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. This is our condition. This is who we are by identification and by participation. Although we might argue that it is unfair to be blamed for something we did not do, the Bible makes it equally clear that we are active participants in an open rebellion against the rule of God in and over our lives. Here's what I want us to see. Advent speaks of coming. It speaks of a deliverer and deliverance. But as we look at the story of Scripture, we see that God is the person and purpose, that the story is about Him. But in the story, a villain is introduced And if we are following the story, we are to feel the weight of our depravity. We are to see that had we been in the garden, we would have chosen the negative. At our core, in Adam, we are self-willed. We reject God's will. And here's where I want us to be left with this morning. I want us to feel the weight of that. It is always difficult to end the story here without telling you the rest of the story. But that's why next week we have the promise of a Savior. But right now, in the story of God, the villain is introduced. But I want us to understand that from the very beginning, God planned a deliverer, and he planned deliverance. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says... In this judgment against mankind, the serpent, and the serpent, verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Inside of that statement, God begins to speak of a deliverer. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Earlier in verse 7, Adam and Eve saw their nakedness, their shame, their guilt, their fear, and they attempted to cover up this sin with their own efforts. But then in verse 21, in response to this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. From the very beginning, God speaks of a deliverer, and he speaks of deliverance. And that's what we will pick up with next week. But do you know, and I recognize that I am addressing a congregation that is primarily in Christ, but do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know what it was like to be in Adam? Do you remember the wickedness of your heart? Do you remember what it felt like to be separated from God? The shame, the guilt, the fear. This is a part of that story. If you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, then you are a sinner and you are separated from him. It is my prayer that you will feel the separation, that it will be palatable, that you'll feel the shame and the fear and the guilt, and that you will realize that God has provided a deliverer and deliverance. There is hope and it is found only in God making a way. And that's what we'll pick up with next week. Would you please stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, we are looking at the big picture of scripture and in ways we cannot begin to understand. We've noted the villain. Sin is present. And tragically, so we chose self over you. We chose our will over your will. And we sinned. And Father, with that sin came guilt and shame. It came fear, and we have hidden from you ever since. Father, may we feel it. And Father, as we meditate on Advent, may we realize that you are going to send this deliverer. You are going to send deliverance, and may we long for it. May we yearn for it. May we, as your people, knowing the story, delight in your power, in your justice, in your grace. Father, thank you for these moments. Continue to work in hearts that need to be turned. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.